BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Welcome to the Seneca Podcast, a weekly discussion of current affairs in China, produced in partnership with SupChina. SupChina offers a feast of business, political, and culture news about a nation that is reshaping the world. We're coming to you this week from the campus of NYU in Manhattan. I'm Kaiser Guo, joined as usual by that robust, scalable, bio-based platform solutions provider, Jeremy Goldcorn. How are you, Jeremy? I'm doing very well, Kaiser. It's great to be back in New York, isn't it? It is indeed. I, I made that introduction by uh, way of segue into introducing our guest. We're joined today by one of a small handful of commentators on things technological who I don't find excruciatingly douchey and annoying. Uh, that's Clay Shirky. Clay's the author of Here Comes Everybody, among many other works, and is deservedly one of the best-known thinkers on the impact of the internet and emerging technologies on society. Since 2013, he has been based at New York University's Shanghai campus, and while he's back here in New York this summer, he's signed on for another tour of duty. Clay Shirky, welcome to Seneca. Thanks very much, guys. It's great to be here. So this isn't actually your first time sitting down with us, right? Uh, I mean, it was like a year or so ago. You were in our old Got house in, in China. Mm-hmm. But you only had observer status for that time. <laughs> you were just right. sort of li- well, wanted to see how it was done. Like I said, you, you signed on for another tour of duty in Shanghai, that NYU down there. Yep. Is China getting under your skin? Yeah, I, you know, a, a, as it does. I mean, I think um, any American who goes to China with their eyes open sees that it's a, it's an industrialized, and in Shanghai's case, many was post-industrialized society that just runs on very different principles. And there's that initial shock of, oh my God, how do I open a bank account? How do I get my phone working? Sort of those systems. And once you get through that, you realize you're living in a place that is so different that you're both learning about this and learning about the states looking backwards. And that gets really addictive. Yeah, yeah. You know, we keep running into expats who say, oh, we came over here for two years. And, you know, when was that? It was like 22 years ago. Right. Um, we're not going to stay that long. Bring the kids back. You say this now. Here. What's that? <laughs> I say this now. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Who knows? And my daughter, in fact, announced the other day that if it becomes President Trump, we're just moving to China. Uh, but uh, the ability to be in that environment and learn just from trying to build an institution. You know, NYU Shanghai has not yet graduated our first class. Our, our first senior class graduates this time next year. So we're building an institution from scratch on an American model, but in a Chinese context. So I get, you know, hybridization just as a side effect of trying to do my job, which is so interesting. We originally came for a, a one-year a one-year tour of duty, and then we signed on for three years because we thought, we want to get this through graduation and see what this is Good, like. good, good. And, and you're now CIO, I understand. You're- yeah, I am, I am now the CIO of NYU Shanghai, which, as I said, is a big hat, no cows kind of position. It's essentially... <laughs> is that chief information chief officer? Chief information officer, yeah. And, and, and essentially, it's helping set uh, priorities for the institution, especially around the use of internet and education, both uh, digital tools in the classroom, but also making materials to distribute. And it came about in part because we were just fighting about video hosting, which is a completely boring subject to be fighting about. NYU wanted to host videos in New York and stream them to China. We kept saying the bandwidth is not adequate. We're going to host it locally. So I made a little set of videos that are just, you know, my classroom lectures. We said, we'll put these up in China just to see what the video, you know, what the video response is. I went on WeChat. I said to students and a few other people I knew, like, hey, if you know anybody in Gansu province, could you get them to click on this? Like, we just want to see how video distribution is working. So, we, you know, we, we make these little videos. We get them distributed. A few days later, I called the IT department and said, hey, you know, did we ever get any feedback on those videos? And uh-huh. said, yeah, we got, we got about 100,000 views. Wow. Holy like, shit. Oh, okay. So we're now starting to take material that we've produced for ourselves in New York. My colleague Dan Schiffman has done a really hundreds of amazing instructional videos, um, get them subtitled in both English and Chinese and are starting to distribute them in China. 
Hey, Jeremy, we, we need a CIO, right? <laughs> no, we do indeed. Is this a public service then? I mean, th these are available to people who aren't NYU Shanghai yeah, absolutely. students. Absolutely. This is, this is saying there is a great hunger for instructional materials. We've already produced a lot of those. And so since we need to get good at bilingual subtitling on technical subjects anyway, we're using this as a way to build up our internal competence. But then we're saying, why not host these and just let anybody who wants to watch them watch? Them. And what are they teaching people how to do specifically? So the ones I did are about social media, as you would expect. And it's essentially trying to walk people through the trade-off between the size of the group and the density of the social network. So, you know, and I use I, I limited myself to only using Chinese examples, right, comparing Renren to WeChat and so forth. Um, with with Dan Schiffman, my colleague, it's training people how to use GitHub, Git and GitHub, which are a uh, source code control system, a, a system for managing software, and GitHub, which is really a publishing platform. And so Dan just made these instructional videos. We're, we're doing that next. He's done a lot on a programming language called Processing, another on JavaScript, the programming language. And we're just starting to try and figure out what does it take to take the instructional materials we've already got and make them more useful to a Chinese audience? Fantastic. Let's talk about your most recent book, uh, Little Rice, mm -hmm. Xiaomi and the Chinese Dream. So as the title suggests, the book isn't just a portrait of the Chinese mobile phone company, but uses the story of the company to exemplify the Chinese technology industry and the Chinese experience of modernity. But let's begin with the phone company, company itself. What drew you to writing about Xiaomi? And can you give us a kind of a potted biography of the company for listeners who may not be familiar with it? Sure. So uh, the, the thing that drew me to it was completely accidental. I needed to buy a phone. And I got lost in a mall in, in uh, Shanghai in 20, as one does, yeah. 2013. As one does. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, particularly, you know, I, I'm not used to feeling like a country mouse because I've lived in New York City for 30 years. And I didn't <laughs> really know that I lived in a medium-sized city until I got to Shanghai. So I'm running, wandering around this mall. I'm lost. I slow down. I'm looking around. And I see there's a place selling phones. I think, ah, I need a phone anyway, whatever. It's a nice-looking flat black phone. Okay, give me that one. Fine, whatever. Take it. Go back to campus. The minute I took that phone out of my pocket, the Chinese students would say, where did you get that? They didn't ask what kind of phone it was. They recognized immediately that it was a Mi 3, but it was sold out in all of China. And I just happened to have lucked out into a place that had it for sale. And when I thought, okay, those teenagers, they are envying a middle-aged guy. Like, that's not, a, that's not an ordinary experience. There's something about this phone. So I started studying the company. The potted biography is that it started in 2010. Lei Jun, who's a, a serial entrepreneur in China, said the market is ripe for a Chinese-designed and branded Android phone, a smartphone, that concentrates on the user experience around the interface, not just the hardware. Yeah, they, so, they began as a UI company, basically, right? Right, right. right. So for a year and a half, it's, it's a phone company, quote, unquote. But for a year and a half, they're only working on MIUI, which is their operating system. So the, the amazing thing to me about that company is that they made three giant bets on the Internet, one on open source software, right? They invested a lot in a UI where the, the underlying software can't be owned. Uh, a lot of companies sort of, you know, slap new icons on it and ship the phone. Xiaomi really invested in it. They invested an enormous amount in user feedback. They ship every week a new version of the operating system. They ask their users every week what they think. And they invested an enormous amount in e-commerce. Had any one of those bets not played out, they would have been a big, interesting phone company. But because all three of those bets were right, and they were right at exactly the right time, uh, it became, for a period at the end of 2014, the most valuable, uh, the most valuable startup in the world at 45 billion. So recently, they were surpassed by Uber. Right, they were surpassed by Uber, that, and now but, Johnny makes more more handsets. Right, I mean, now they're in this competitive world. Sure. I mean, the interesting thing, you know, as I as I have 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 said a couple of times since that book came out, 24. 2014 was really, that was the high watermark because that was the last year in which anyone underestimated Xiaomi. Right. After 2014, everybody knew. Um, and, and Xiaomi's dilemma really is that they've taught the competition what to do. 
when you look at OnePlus or Meiju or Oppo or whatever, even Huawei, which is like the dowdiest uh, networking company in, in, in all of China, they're all now shipping really good looking, really you know, handsets that work quite well, have nice yeah, operating yeah, yeah. systems and so forth. So Xiaomi's, Xiaomi's in a way trained all of its own competition and is now, because of that, in a much more competitive landscape. Would you consider it an innovator? Absolutely. And, and the thing that I try to describe in the book, particularly for an American audience, right? I'm, I'm, I am not there to be the Laowai that explains China to the Chinese, right? I, I would not be capable of that. But I can say, particularly to the American tech tribe, We've all been seduced by Apple into believing that innovation is something that happens around hardware, that people wait for these new devices. But what's a phone? It's a slab of black glass with some icons on it, right? I mean, in a way, the, the, the physical envelope of the phone is the place where the innovation is, is in a way, the most stalled. What, what Xiaomi has innovated on is supply chain management. They've innovated on marketing. They've innovated on user feedback. All of the things around the phone that make the business processes and the engineering techniques go well. So it is the, the, the Xiaomi phones. They're good phones. I've owned a Mi 3, a Mi 4, a Mi 5, a Mi Note. My wife has a Hongmi. So we're, we're pretty... You're keeping them in business. Active yeah. consumers of Xiaomi products. The hardware is good. The operating system is good. But the innovation is really, their innovation is in being a business. It, it's not the phones that are innovative. It is the way the phones are made and improved that's innovative. Mm -hmm. And that innovation, the, the change in everything from the most upstream supply chain, right, negotiating with people, selling them components in Shenzhen, all the way down to how the phone is sold to the end user. That's that's where the innovation has been. So I mean, they've always been sort of presenting themselves as an internet play, or or at least as a software play. But if you ask most people right. these days, I mean, they're still essentially this hardware manufacturer. I mean, are they going to be able to to transcend or rise above this kind of low margin, cutthroat business model? Well, so I mean, certainly the answer this year is no. Right. Uh, right. That that in fact, what they cleared out for themselves was this middle space that shouldn't you know people thought shouldn't exist, where they could say if you can invest enough in design, you can be better than people would expect for low cost or cheaper than people would expect for moderate quality. They don't have to be luxury brand like Apple. They don't have to be just get the phones out quick like like LG. But everybody now is going to that middle zone. Right. And so that's, that's their difficulty. The big problem is the one you, you alluded to, Kaiser, which is that they've always said we aspire to be a services company. Right. We update the operating system religiously so that people will own individual phones longer. We're not trying to shorten the period in which people buy new phones. We want to keep people. Um, the, the huge dilemma, and I talk about this a little bit in the book, but it's become much, much clearer even since the book came out, is it's not clear that China is a good incubation market for Internet services. It's an amazing market for hardware, obviously the greatest in the world. But the services model runs into problems, one, because China's unique characteristic means that anything that's perfectly well fitted for China sometimes needs a second version to export. I mean, Xiaomi is right now stuck maintaining two completely separate operating systems because they, you know, they have to have a global version that has Google, the Google stack on it, basically, and a, and a Google free phone inside China. And that got them into some trouble with the Mi 5 launch. Yeah, I mean, and that, that actually, uh, they, they hired Hugo Barra, who was a, a VP at Google, who right. was one of the, the original Android folks, uh, and he's now in charge of their international expansion. So uh, <clears throat> that brings us to the question that I, I think is part of your thesis about Xiaomi, which is that they're going to have a tough time expanding into international markets. And of course, it's not just Xiaomi. It's pretty much all Chinese technology companies. Yep. Can you talk about some of the obstacles they, they're, they're facing or that they're going to face? I mean, the two big obstacles, well, there's, there's, there's three obstacles. The first one is the one I alluded to, which is the strategy tax, right? Um, strategy me, tax. That's what, strategy tax, you call it. Yes. A strategy tax is the amount of value you're willing to give up in a new effort in order to preserve a core market. So 
Uh, Microsoft famously paid an enormous strategy tax in the move to the internet because they cared about the local hardware. And so for a long time, network services were done badly, even though they had Ray Ozzie, who was one of the great geniuses of networking tools and services there, they couldn't get, you know, they couldn't get their stuff online. So Xiaomi's strategy tax is they can't offer the phone in China that the rest of the world demands, which has Google integrated into the Android stack. So when the Mi 5 came out, um, they have to have two different sets of operating systems, ROMs they're called. Um, they had the, the, the Chinese ROM and they had what's called the global ROM. And twice they launched and then had to pull back the global ROM because it was too buggy. And the demand for a Xiaomi running the, the, the Google inclusive stack was so great that if you Googled Xiaomi or MIUI global stable ROM Mi 5, you got malware sites that were distributing crippled versions of their core product. The demand was so large that people weren't willing to wait. And the strategy tax that they paid essentially in the period between when the demand was there and when they were able to meet the demand um, was a period in which people had a really lousy experience because either they couldn't get what they wanted or they got malware on their phone. Second, second big problem is the one that everybody knows, which is IP stuff. Uh, when they launched in India, they got sued by Ericsson. They had to pull four days later. They're slowly negotiating their way around that. I'm hearing now that they have acquired a large enough patent portfolio that they're thinking about opening in the United, you know, selling in the United States finally uh, at the end of this year. But it takes a while for the existing major players in the phone world to agree that you're large enough and important enough not to try to sue you out of existence. So they'll <laughs> still face a little bit of that. And then the third big one, and the most speculative, is our services in China that work well so bent to the Chinese model, particularly things like interaction with a Chinese banking system or visibility for uh, censorship, observation, surveillance, that it makes it hard for those services to leave the country. So, I mean, essentially, the problem is Chinese companies become very, very good at operating in China, dealing with the government, dealing with Chinese consumers' particular tastes. But this prepares them very badly for operating in other countries because their DNA is just right. adapted to a whole different environment. And being able to say one of our core competences is being in Beijing's good graces, that's a competitive advantage in only one country in the world. Now, as a consolation prize, it's the single largest internet market there is. So if you had to pick a market to be limited to, China's the market you'd pick. But it still means that optimizations for China are pessimizations for other places. And I think when you look at WeChat, which is the great social media success, when you look at the places WeChat exists outside of China, you see Silicon Valley, you see East Africa, you see you know, the, the, the diaspora of universities. But it's not being drawn in by the rest of the world. It's being carried out by the Chinese as they go. And there doesn't yet seem to be evidence of organic adoption outside of that, that diaspora. Again, despite, despite all the money they spent on Messi in the uh, right, uh, the right no, exactly. It's it's they would very obviously they would very much like to be a global brand because the network lock-in, you know, Google and Google and Facebook are the only two countries in the world that have more users than China has citizens around these kind of network effects. Tencent would very much like that, sure. But it's really hard to be really good at operating in the Chinese context and then have a product which is ready for export to sort of global expectations and standards. So our friend Christina Larson, who's been on the show a number of times, she recently published a piece in the MIT Technology Review uh, that actually kind of describes this, this paradox of the Chinese internet that in some ways it's just this amazing experience right. with just these really inventive business models and services that are, you know, way out ahead of even oh the United God, States. Yeah. But in other ways, it's just absolute shit. Uh, I mean, it, I think we all agree with that that yeah. basic proposition. <laughs> right. uh, so, what what is it? Uh, I, let, let's talk about some of these services that that are. Um, I think we're we're all aware of you know the ways in which the Chinese internet is shit. This isn't you know, I'm back here in the states now and I'm marveling still at right. just how everything YouTube works. just plays. Yeah, when you, you click just, the yeah, button. You yeah, just, yeah, just go for it. I mean, it's it's none of this mucking around with a fucking VPN and all that. Right. 
my children when they got off the plane just in hog heaven. Right, exactly, hog heaven. But but let's talk about the, you know the other side of that, uh, which Christina described really really well. I mean, and of course you know she focuses on companies like Tencent, but there are a host of these things. I mean, we could talk about O2O, for example, in China, right? Uh, and you know, finally, I think if you've lived in China in the last few years and you've seen the explosion of these on-demand services, there's like a, an Uber for everything, right? right. Uh, in my last job, I mean, I was kind of responsible for logging this idea on behalf of Baidu in China. But now, I mean, you can tell me really candidly what you really think. Uh, <laughs> I'm not going to object. Um, what, what, you know, why is this sector so hyperdeveloped in China? And and you know, think you think it's sustainable given how? Hey, can we also just um, yeah. have a definition of? Oh O2O. sure, sure, yeah. Sure. I'm sorry, I have a definition of O2O. O2O. Yeah, oh. the, the kinds of services. Yes, yeah, because this, this word isn't used widely outside of China, even though the phrase was actually coined first in a TechCrunch. Right. in you know in, in yeah. the US the online to offline services which is where the O2O comes from are one of the really striking things the th- Amazon's dream of commerce which is you buy something and then someone on a motorcycle drives it to your house that's just a daily occurrence right the the ability in lot, China in China mm-hmm. right the, the the ability to buy something on Taba and then just take it absolutely for granted that the economics work out so that a person on a scooter will pull up to your door and hand you the package is it's one of the really extraordinary advantages China has right the existence of a large pool of labor that is uh, available, obviously, particularly in cities, for that kind of hybrid online to offline work makes all of the e-commerce experience in China so much better. You know, I, I had thought, you know, Amazon is the apotheosis of e-commerce companies. And now when I buy something and I realize it will not be here later today, <laughs> it, 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 it just, the, 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 the Chinese experience is so incredibly dense, at least in the tier one cities. Let's make sure people understand that we're not just talking about stuff either. We're talking about, you know, I've ordered a guitar teacher. He's going to show up and he's right. going to give me an right. hour long lesson. Right. It's the service, the, the degree to which the ability to interpolate a service layer between anything people do offline and your computer, you know, the, the all of NYU lives off of Sherpa, which is the delivery service, which unlike Seamless and so forth, seems to have the, the, the restaurant to motorcycle to your door thing down. Yeah. I, I had dinner, I had, I had a sort of going away lunch for largely for our sophomores who are all going to go away into the network. They're going to study abroad their junior year. I'll be gone their senior year. So we were all going to go out to a restaurant. It, that was a day where God was beta testing a hurricane and we could not leave the building. <laughs> so I ordered lunch for like 20 people. And they're like, okay, see you in 45 minutes, you know, at, at the absolute last minute. And that, that kind of on demand, we link the services in the real world to, to wherever you are using your phone, using your computer. That is incredibly welcome. And is that just a function of the availability of cheap labor, or is there something else behind it? It's partly the availability of cheap labor. It's partly that China is incredibly blessed. with. I, I once read a description of the American internet industry saying America's advantage isn't just that they have entrepreneurial business people. They also have entrepreneurial consumers, where people offered a new service will say, sure, I'll try this. China has that in spades. When you hear that something that no one's ever thought of before is now on offer, people will jump in and try it. Oh, yeah, I'll order this online. I'll be happy to do that online. Um, There's also, there's not uh, a huge amount of infrastructure to slow things down, right? There wasn't an enormous countrywide investment in copper landlines. So when the mobile phone comes along. Um, it's the famous leapfrogging effect. Yeah. So the leapfrogging effect here is that you look at, say, let's take restaurants. It's an incredibly fragmented industry here. I mean, it's it's in the U.S., I mean, to my eternal chagrin, most of the restaurants we tend to eat at are our big national chains. I mean, you know, it's your okay. Chili's and your Chipotle's <laughs> and your, you know, Olive Garden and what have you. Just don't ever go to a Ruby Tuesday's. <laughs> no, I'll stay away from Well, I mean, I've, I stay away from, from generally speaking. 
But, um, you know, they have these big back office staffs, right? Right. These guys are able to you know, the, to mount these national campaigns. They they aren't dependent on the internet the way that Joe's noodle shop down on the corner right. is, right? But, you know, he, he, he doesn't have a back right. office staff. He can spend right. a little bit of money. Right. Um, he can just sort of sign on to Baidu Waimai or on to, you know, uh, uh, Meituan. You don't have to do product placements anymore. I don't have to do product placements. Although you know, Baidu Wai Mai is is you know it's 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 pretty remarkable. I mean, I'm, I still was up until my last moments in Beijing, I was still very much dependent on it. Uh, yeah, so yeah, the the leapfrog effect. That, but but, but none of these companies I would play are making money. I mean, they're 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 bleeding really really heavily. They're all uh, dependent very much on subsidies. They're burning venture money. Right. I mean, this is this is the whole O2O space. Is this sustainable? I mean, it's not sustainable from the point of view of any one company, but it is sustainable when they collapse or are merged. Okay. Right. So as, as I say in the book, technological change comes to China two ways, late then fast, right? Something will come along. There's, there, you know, smartphones in their current configuration launched in 2007. There's almost no adoption in China until 2010. And then all of a sudden the curve goes almost vertical. That's right. And... This this effect is something I call this is the blood red bay out of which will swim one right. big ass one shark. Very, yeah, whatever shark is into the blue water. So right. you you already see that with the Baidu Alibaba Tencent phenomenon, right? The massive, uh, the you know sort of three very large companies, one one around search and some social, one around uh, almost all forms of e-commerce and financial transaction, and one that's picking up the rest of social and media. And we're going to see that with a lot of these O2O services. Plainly, the Didi, the, the Didi versus Uber fight, now that Apple's invested a billion dollars in Didi, which is the homegrown ride-hailing service, and Uber's burning, you know, a billion dollars a year or whatever they At say. At least, yeah. Plainly, that's not going to last. Um, one or the other of them will win. But the, the future value, of being the coordinating layer for the Chinese economy as local consumption increases is going to be staggeringly large. Yeah, it's a prize worth bleeding and, and right. fighting very hard and so for. And so in a way, it's like everybody's taken Bezos's playbook from Amazon where they took every dollar and then some and plowed it back into the company for years. People kept wanting Amazon to start doing profit, you know, profit taking and so forth. And Bezos kept saying... I'm not done until this company has achieved things that you all aren't even thinking about. You want me to take 30% margins instead of 5% margins on running a bookstore, and you don't understand what I have in mind. So the, the consolidation will be brutal when it happens, but the, the value of that market is staggeringly large. The other thing that, that you alluded to about Joe's Noodle Shop down the block is you see this in the electronics market. You go into Huachong Bay in Shenzhen, and it's the largest electronics market in the world. And these booths are one meter by two meter. And one booth does nothing but sell LEDs. And one booth does nothing but sell light-up switches. But in a way, those are just front-facing counters to a sort of network wholesale operation. Right. If I walk up there and I say, I want 10,000 of something... They don't have 10,000 of them. But they know who to get. They can right. quickly assemble a, a consortium that has 10,000 of that thing. And that, that kind of centralization, it's not the U.S. model that you talked about, about we roll up back office functions across this wide range. It's, it's a more interconnected, more networked way of saying, we'll deal at small scale when we've got small scale problems. We'll deal at large scale when we've got large scale problems. But we can move very nimbly across those. Two. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I think what the internet introduces is the possibility that 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 model is going to collapse into a smaller number of larger scale players. It's happened on the internet industry in the internet industry itself. itself right. Why do Alibaba, Tencent? Is that coming to the restaurant industry? Is that coming to the electronics industry? To fashion? To all of the kinds of other production that are in this networked small players that can take on large jobs? Now that there's this addressable layer in the middle that the internet provides, we may start to see 
restaurants turning into chains. Or we may start to see, you know, these independent players finding incredible viability because of the internet. I mean, no, right. It could, it, it could, it, it may be that the network model that, that Wachong Bay has always run on is actually a better It just fit. transposes to the internet. And it, it, right. it, yeah. So that's Jack Ma's uh, shtick really, isn't it? Yeah, that, yeah, uh, yeah. You know, his aim is to enable that to happen in China, including, you know, Keep the small right, peasant so, farmers. So this, and this is one of those places where you get, I mean, I, I don't live this nearly as deeply as you guys do, but as an American, you have to say, is my experience prescient or is it just wrong, <laughs> right? So eBay comes along, you know, years before Taobao, and it's all the heartwarming stories of people selling stuff out of their garages and basements, and Etsy comes along, it's individual craftspeople. And in both of those cases, a small number of very large sellers come to take over most of the market because the economies of scale upstream of eBay or upstream of Etsy put a premium on scale. So if I look at that model and I look at I look at Taobao, I think Taobao is going to drive that. But if I look at the electronics market and and, and Baoshan Lu in, in the Baoshan neighborhood of Shanghai, which is one of these sort of networked markets that I've spent a lot of time in, I think maybe this is another case where the Chinese model is going to change the way the internet affects the affects the economics of the system as a whole. Interesting. I mean, we're talking just a little bit about uh, Shenzhen. I mean, you mentioned the electronics markets there. Uh, you've spent some time there. You've looked yeah, at, yeah. At, at the ecosystem. I mean, one of the flaws of Seneca, which I think we're obviously going to try to correct, is that it's very, very Beijing-centric. But the other great tech center of China is Shenzhen. And uh, we, Jeremy, you know, we got to get down there and do do some shows out of there. But it's always yeah. been a sort of theory of mine that that sitting there in the heart of the global tech hardware supply chain and in such close proximity to all the ODMs and the OEMs, Shenzhen just has this massive advantage that you can prototype really, you can iterate super quickly. You can ship to anywhere in, in the world. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, do, do you agree with this? I and mean, you, you tell us. Tell us, tell, tell us a little bit. I mean, you know, uh, dazzle us with stories of Shenzhen. <laughs> well, Shenzhen, I mean, it's it, it's a dazzling. It's place. it's so spectacular. So so Huachong Bay is the the main drag, but it's become the name of the neighborhood. And there's just building after building. We talked about this a little bit earlier. Floor after floor, where you're just riding escalators up, and the whole building will be based around a single component. There is an LED building right. in Shenzhen. They sell every form of sign and string and controller and panel. And it's just, this is where you go. And you can walk around and understand where an industry is at its sort of the juncture between what the components are and what the devices will be just by walking around the right building in Huachung Bay. So the, the, the thing for me that really is the... Um, the way to understand where that stuff is going is this stack of printed glossy advertisements that they hand out. Um, it's there's basically a couple of distribution points, and it's just that day's advertisements. And everybody who's white labeling and OEMing and ODMing says, "Here are the watches we make," and then you turn the page. Here are all of the circuit boards that we've made that are now the basis for these watches. So they very quickly standardize one watch circuit board, and then they'll make any kind of enclosure you like. Wow. And so you can see, in a way, you can see the kind of evolutionary capitalism at work, which in much of the world takes cycles of years or you know five-year chunks. In Shenzhen, it will be 90-day <laughs> cycles where, you know, I, so I was just there this June, and... Uh, one of the things that happened is Google Cardboard, which was co-invented actually by a, by a former ITP student, this model of putting your phone inside a cardboard I've lens to make it into a VR thing, that is everywhere in Shenzhen now. I saw five different iterations of that model of stick your phone in some glasses and get cheap VR for sale in a single booth in Wachung Bay. And then you get one of these... Um, you get one of these uh, advertising supplements and you can see all of the people selling, this is the VR stuff, this is the watch stuff. We're the people trying to turn hoverboards into real transportation. And there's a million experiments. Most of them will fail. But you can get a sense when you see how many people are working on it that this is what Shenzhen does incredibly well, which is 
any opportunity gets chewed through so fast that it goes from a kind of speculative product line to something where there's an absolutely normal way to do it in the space of less than a year. Am I wrong in thinking this is absolutely unique in the world? It is not quite unique in the world. The one other ecosystem that was ever like this was Chip Fabs in Silicon Valley. Yeah, but in the 70s. In the 70s, right. exactly. So it is it is currently unique in the world. But but um, uh, Anno Saxonian's work on the cluster that is Silicon Valley made exactly this point. It wasn't just that there were companies that had brilliant uh brilliant chip designers. The real moment came when, when uh, Fairchild blew up. The, the, mm-hmm. the Fairchild company blew up, and I think four different companies formed out of it. When and you say blew up, what the, do you the, the Fairchild, Fairchild was famously run by Shockley, who was, a, who was a virulent racist, among other things. Nobel Prize winning uh, inventor of the transistor or the, the integrated circuit, and also a virulent racist and apparently a terrible manager. And... So several people quit the company and started other semiconductor firms in Silicon Valley. That is the silicon of Silicon Valley, right. was, was this, this kind of er event. And it's the ability to say, we're in such close proximity to all of our complements that we, can, we, can, we know where we are in the supply chain, and we're in such proximity to all of our competitors that we know what we need to do next. So I was walking around with uh, uh, Lee Tawai, David Lee, the you know one of the fathers of the, um, the maker, maker movement yeah. and the the co working space uh, hack labs in China, and we came across a booth that sells carved wood battery supplies for your phone. So you know those plastic sure, ugly sure. batteries. So they basically do a version of that that's carved out of wood, and of course you can get your company's logo carved into it and all that other stuff. But they demoed it with the standard connectors and the standard uh, circuit board that mediates between the battery and your phone. Not because they make those, those chips, they don't, but because they know exactly what a buyer is going to want, right? They're so close to the people who make the batteries that they can just walk uh-huh. over there and say, hey, we're doing this thing. We're you know, laser cutting wood or whatever. Just give us some of your chipsets that we'll show off in our product. And it's not even like a phone call. You can literally walk, walk down right, the block exactly, right. and say, we need, we need a, a USB and a micro USB in and out. We need to carve room for the PCB board. Can you give us a PCB board so that we can you know, make these showroom products? And the whole ecosystem is so informal and densely packed. That that the the you know Chris Chris Anderson of TED calls this crowd accelerated learning. Uh-huh. He's interested in crowd accelerated learning. People watching each other on YouTube, but Shenzhen is crowd accelerated learning for electronics. This uh, brings us to a question I'd like to ask about uh, censorship, because I mean you know the the Shenzhen you describe and some of the other things we've talked about. Um, we're talking about innovation, but a question Kaiser and I have constantly been asked over the over the years is the impact of censorship on innovation. Is it possible in China with such a restrictive intellectual environment for true innovation to take place? How, how do you see this question? You know, it's a stack, really. If you're talking about hardware innovation, I, I, it's impossible to look at China and ask yourself whether or not there's innovation. I mean, it's just <laughs> it, the, 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 the clock speed at which hardware is invented, tried, improved, modified. I mean, it's really, you know, I mean, just 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 read Bunny Huang on what is going on in Shenzhen and you stop asking that. Bunny Huang, let's just ID him. He's the guy who hacked the, uh, the uh, I mean, he's sort of most famous for having hacked the PlayStation. Is that right? Yeah, he's, yeah. he's he, I'm really one of, just, just a, a genius level hardware hacker, but also very thoughtful on exactly these issues. And he's written quite a bit about the Shanghai culture in, in Shenzhen. Right, right. 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 Um, so, so the 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 Shanghai culture, the the culture of quick, cheap. Sometimes they're copies. Sometimes they're just suited to local tastes or local characteristics. All of that stuff ties into other parts of the ecosystem. Xiaomi could not have done what Xiaomi did without Shanghai as a kind of rapid iteration tool and so forth. Where the censorship comes in is, I think, in two places. One, the closer you get to any kind of human coordination, 
the more the government is worried. And they're more worried now than they were a few years ago. I've been really struck because I study social media at the way in which the whole layer of services that we take for granted here that coordinate people in the real world, Foursquare and Meetup and so forth, are, are lacking in China, not because there are not services like that, but because they're so, it's just so inimical to the kinds of things the government is willing to allow. Right, the so potential for, for a political organization is just too immense. Right? Yeah, so, so certainly political organization, but the thing that I find startling and I think is bad for the Chinese innovation landscape is it's also civic organization. There's been an increased you know, the reining in of the rights lawyers, the cracking down on film festivals that have any kind of identity attached to them. My students, it's interesting, my my, my Chinese students are all born in the late 90s. Um, and the crackdown on gay-themed literature... Born in the... Oh, my gosh. <laughs> oh, you get used to it. You get used to oh, it. Man. No, it's really... I remember the first time I had students in my class who were born in the year I started using the internet, which is now in the rearview mirror. Yeah, but way like back. This moment of, and I have to stop myself because, of course, I want to, you know, let me tell you about Usenet and internet relay chat. And the students are all like, oh, Grandpa, you know, can we just get on to <laughs> or something? So it's a, it's a constant battle. But my students were born in the late 90s. And for them, the crackdown on gay-themed literature in 2011 was, a, was an important event in their youth. They were in junior high or, or lower high school. And that part of the Chinese censorship experiment, where trying to remove civil or social commitments that are not controlled or mediated by the party, seems to me to be very bad for innovation. I mm -hmm. think... Certainly, at a minimum, the soft power model, the Joe Nye model that the government very much wants out of its movie and gaming industry is somewhat damaged by the fact that now even to publish a mobile game, you need advanced permission from the party. Like, that's just bad for innovation. In between those two layers, hardware, obviously, tremendously innovative culture and high-level coordinating services, there's been real breaks on innovation because the government's just decided it's not worth the risk. In the middle is this weird question, which is, how brittle are they making the internet? Because internet brownouts, connections to the rest of the world, occasional just, uh, you know, sometimes they'll just stop delivering images across the firewall if they're worried about pictures coming from Hong Kong kind of thing. And when you look at the Internet of Things as this big economic model, what it assumes is pretty unfettered availability across the network between any, you know, your refrigerator and the elevator or whatever the things you're looking at are. If the Chinese make their Internet too brittle as a side effect of both surveillance and censorship, they will lose the ability to model an Internet of Things devices that work well on the more open Internet. And we haven't seen that yet. That's speculative. But that, I think, would be the big future worry compared to there is innovation in hardware. There's very little innovation in uh, you know, global culture. I mean, it's almost impossible to imagine the kind of Akihabara effusion of culture that came out of China. I have a hard time imagining that coming out of Beijing, for example. But then in between those two models, there's this question of just are they making the internet too brittle to be a good environment for modeling internet of things technology? Mm -hmm. And we shall see. And uh, we shall uh, see. Well, speaking of censorship, uh, one, one very prominent American exponent of so-called internet freedom was Representative Chris Smith of New Jersey. Oh, Yes. <laughs> and, you know, I mean, if you'll, you'll recall, I mean, he was along with Tom Lantos and a few other people who called Yahoo and other uh, technology companies on the carpet before Congress. And But uh, he's never let up. And this has been a big issue for him. Uh, it, and it, I think it was back in February of this year. Was that right? Mm -hmm, something where, like that. Yeah. yeah where he, early, he, he early actually came to China, night. which was kind of astonishing that you know, he was given a visa at all. He uh, was given a visa because we invited him. Ah, because and, and and you invited him because he insisted on being. He, he, so <laughs> our vice chancellor Jeff Lehman was called back to testify testify before Congress uh, about a year ago. This was, I think, 
during or in the immediate aftermath of the concern around the Confucius Institutes in the U.S., and there was a sense that any collaboration between American institutions and Chinese institutions in the educational realm was, in the minds of Congress, suspect. Yeah, absolutely. They brought Jeff... Uh, they brought Jeff in to testify. I think that he made the case, which I can easily make as well, that engagement is the right answer. Um, that that uh, uh, an educational landscape which becomes less global um, is not good for anybody. That's right. Um, and uh, in the course of that, uh, of his, his testimony uh, in Congress, he said, come visit, right? I mean, uh, we I got nothing to hide. Come, come talk to us. And Chris Smith took him up on it. Smith had had not been able to get a visa to come into China, largely because of his uh, his his concerns around both uh, the one child uh, policy, Christian and, churches, right, right. and especially the one right, child right, right. policy. Exactly. That's he, his big he, thing. Is he an evangelical Christian? I don't know if he's evangelical, but he's certainly a Protestant Christian in that mode, with all of the commitments you would expect, including uh, distressingly to to many of us on both faculty and students. Having a conception of human rights that does not extend to increasing human rights for gay, for the gay Chinese population. And so the, it's a very narrow conception of human rights, which has which which is centered around Christianity and the one child policy, but doesn't include increased civil freedoms for other kinds of, you know, other kinds of identities or other kinds of issues. So uh, how was his visit? He came, he came uh, to NYU. I mean, yeah, so he what, came, what can you say about it? <laughs> you know, his visit was very frustrating. And I think we've said this, you know, we would, we would say this to anybody. His visit was very frustrating. Um, he came, he brought with him um, both other people from, from Congress and people from the consulate in Shanghai. Uh, we had two days of hosting him. He came and visited many of us. I spoke to him both, uh, both as a faculty member in a later meeting at the CIO about, about internet access. We walked through all those issues. He was very concerned about censorship. We said, here's the library. You can talk to the librarians. We don't accept censored books. Um, you know, we work with ebooks when we can't get it in paper, but we don't deny students access to materials. We practice you know, freedom of inquiry. That's our job. Um, we walked him through all of that. He met with many of the students who are, as our students are, very thoughtful, very smart people. Um, and then he got up and gave a speech in which, as far as I can tell, literally not one conversation he had had with us made it into the content of the speech. Mm. It was essentially, I am here to punch China in the nose about the one-child policy. I'm here to punch China in the nose about underground Christian churches. The fact that I'm at NYU simply gives me a microphone inside the country, but doesn't address what I've seen at NYU. Our Chinese students were horrified. We were, you know, we, we had to say to them, look, we can't, He's a member of Congress, right? And he's an American citizen. We can't tell him what to say and not to say. The kind of questions of public speech that you grew up with in China are different for us. He gets to come here and use the platform. But we're not endorsing what he said, and we're mortified that after engaging with us, we don't seem to have even been able to have a conversation about what's special about NYU Shanghai. Mm -hmm. So... And it reinforces the, uh, a common Chinese trope about high-handed American sanctimony on, that's, on these issues. That is exactly the thing it reinforces. <laughs> right, right. That's 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 exactly right. And and even more worrying to us because you know we're academics and not politicians. It's we all are committed to keeping the conversation going. Right. There are ways in which I mean this is your great thing, Kaiser. There are ways in which. China's historical contingencies are different, and even people who agree that an increase in freedom of speech for the population would be good can still disagree about time, place, and manner of those changes. Um, those are complicated conversations in which people can, can both disagree widely and approach the, the topic with goodwill. That's the academic project. And we didn't get that. We weren't able to show the students someone has come from the United States, has had this conversation with us, and then he didn't even get up and disagree. He just didn't address the issues that we had discussed during his visit because the, the having a platform inside the country was more attractive around the issues that he felt the same about in D.C. as he had spent after he spent time with us. And the 
the failure, our failure to get a conversation going and to show students what that can be like, that I think is the is the lost the, 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 yeah lost opportunity there. Yeah, exactly. Although I'm not at all surprised given this guy. So Jeremy, I, uh, one more question. I mean, it's a personal question here. You know, we're all parents here. We've all got children, and we're all kind of tech people, right? And this place is a yeah. So we, I mean, yeah. uh, this was something Kaiser and I were discussing on our drive down from Rhode Island yesterday. Um, Clay, what what effect do you think the uh, obsessive use of mobile phones and the, the internetification of everything is going to have on our children? And you know, China may be the place where. The, the problems are going to be the most extreme, but this is a, a global phenomenon. <laughs> right, right. I mean, it's, it's interesting, and I was, it's, it, I've been having this conversation with my wife, as one does. As you say, we're all, we're all parents here. Um, so years ago, I wrote a book called Cognitive Surplus about the ways in which people who use the internet were engaged in more creative acts, even within the media environment, right? Um, if I had to pick a single thing that exemplified this for our, you know, for our kids' generation, it would be Minecraft, where it is, it is a screen-based Legos. game. But it's Legos. It's, right. it's, you're showing off your work. You're seeing what other people are doing. My son used to watch Minecraft videos about techniques for building these kinds of yeah, things. Yeah, how to use redstone to make the, like, you know, right, exactly. It's, a, it's, it's, it's it amazing. Was, it was, it was, it was fantastic. And what has happened in the last three years is that video has gotten good enough that television has come back onto the internet. That the the pattern of YouTube, where it was constantly interruptive and you had to make choices and you could make your own video and upload it and so forth, that's given way to I can binge watch Game of Thrones and the the shift to a more passive model of consumption is really distressing. Um, that's that is in a way the thing I worry most about. We're so, just eating into our cognitive surplus, and we may now be in cognitive deficit. I mean, it's it's, just, it's so for us it was Gilligan's Island. At least this stuff is produced at a higher level. The Stephen Johnson argument is if you're watching Game of Thrones, you're better off than if you were watching Gilligan's Island. Um, this is the everything bad is good for you. Yeah, I argument. like Johnson's argument. I mean, yeah, the Flynn effect and all that stuff. Right? But but you know, for me, I think there's really there's a whole complex of issues that 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 to the parent often looks like the mobile phone but some of it in china there is not at least certainly in 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 among the shanghai parents where my my kids are there's not a kind of hangout after school culture as much so a lot of the socialization that is really the job of adolescents we're distracting them trying to teach them algebra their job is to socialize with each other that's happening through the phone so if my kids are talking to each other on the phone, I'm less distressed about that than if they're watching binge-watching Game of Thrones. And then there's the question of, is the phone starting to displace people's willingness to, to you know, is there a preference for phone-based communication over real-world communication? Dana Boyd's argument is that most of the socialization on the phone happens because we've restricted our kids' ability to leave the house. And I think this is the big open question is, as they age, does the phone start to interfere with their ability to deal with each other face to face? That's still the big question. But, you know, the, ultimately, and sadly for us, just like the old debate about the V-chip during the Clinton administration, there's no technological solution. The solution is... It's a parenting-based solution. Exactly. Yeah. Tell your kids, get off the fucking phone and go go out and play, right? I mean, it's, which, you know, it's sad because I would very much like like there to be a, a robot technology that replaces fatherhood on, on days where I want there to be. But you just got to get after your kid and say, turn that off and go do X. Some of it's, you know, obviously in the Chinese context, it's more about homework than about go out and play, certainly for, for, for kids my age. But... That kind of parenting intervention, we're now in a world where people, where kids can fall into, you know, being on the phone five hours a day, whereas for our generation, it was television. I think the phone is better than television because it still at least holds out the possibility for interaction. But the, the, the need for a parenting model that says stop doing something digital and go do something physical is, is higher now than it was five years ago. Clay, give us five minutes on your own recent Chinese internet obsessions. I know, I mean, every time I get together with you these days, it's it's uh, you bring up Billy Billy, 
I mean, I don't. I think there are probably a lot of people out there who aren't aware of some of these kind of quirky innovations from from China, like right, or YY or or Inca or any of these other bizarro land things. Uh, go. Yeah. So so there is a, there's an explosion in experimentation with video. I'm now going to contradict myself because here's a place where people are using the cognitive surplus in one way or another. Right. There's an explosion of experimentation with video. Two of the two of the things that I'm particularly interested in are Beely Beely and Shakashu. So Beely Beely is it's basically crowdsourced mystery science theater three thousand. You watch a video with That's a exactly bunch. how I described it to you yesterday, right, Jeremy? It is, but yeah, that me- means nothing to non Americans. Oh, right. So, so MST 3000 it. was, okay, it was this great show that ran in the 80s. Uh, and the, 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 the thing was, I mean, you'd, you'd be watching this movie with these two robots sitting in front. You'd see, you'd see them in silhouette. And they were just wisecrack on these bad, bad movies. I mean, they were usually sci fi movies and they were atrocious. They were, you know, B or lower movies. And, so yeah, so Billy Billy is so Billy Billy takes this idea of bullet comments, which which came out of Japan, which are comments that zoom across the screen left to right, but are tied to a particular time signature of the video. So the comments appear during the piece of the video you're watching, um, and so the screen is playing, but then these these comments are going through, and this is one of the places where the incredible information density of Chinese characters makes a big difference. Because it doesn't take up so much screen real estate to say something meaningful in the way that it would in an alphabetic language. Right. So you get these bullet comments flying across the screen. You also have comments going on in the left. Yeah, the emoticons, side. and you got all sorts of. Yeah. And and it's it's one of those cases like you know the Twitter stream during the Academy Awards or or during the Super Bowl where a big part of the pleasure is knowing that other people are watching it at the same time and right. that kind of that kind of social coordination and what uh, typically are the videos that people oh, they're are watching terrible. And they're, i mean you know as, as, as guys you know they're 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 ridiculous old martial arts movies or there's a there's a certain affection for the kind of badly produced but ultra earnest propaganda films of the you know of 15 years ago where it was the you know the and there's a particularly in Shanghai of course because 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 where the events transpired the, you know all of the stuff around the end of the republic and the and the 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 communist uprising in the in the 1940s those kinds of those kinds of movies there's there's music videos I mean it's really you know all that is schlocky yeah I mean, all that is schlocky right, right exactly right. <laughs> and it's you know there was. It, 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 the rap on sociology is that somebody got a fifty thousand dollar grant to find a brothel, but the there is a there is a little bit of that in the sociological work around video. There was a a study that said it turns out that people prefer commenting on bad videos to good videos. Right? They want to watch good <laughs> videos and they want to comment on bad videos. So this is a way of taking this kind of low level, almost a treatise of the video world, and turning it into this sorts of all you know color commentary. And people are just trying to crack each other up. Um, then there's Shakushu, which I'm quite interested in because it takes the idea of karaoke, which never worked well online, and it reverses it. So Shakushu is you making a video of yourself acting out the soundtrack of a movie or of a song. So instead of karaoke, where they strip out and you put in your own audio in KTV, they're saying you're not you're not. You're lip syncing, rather, instead of singing on top of. And so people make these little videos of themselves acting out as their, you know, the soundtrack of a movie or a, or a, or a song is playing. And they, what do they give you by way of props? I mean, do they give you different backgrounds to be up against? Or, 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 no, in fact, uh, the video is entirely yours. yours you can okay, green right. screen your own stuff. But no, it's really, it's what they give you is this, um, they just give you the background audio of these famous, famous songs or scenes. And, you know, there, there's, there's some, you know, protestations of love, of course, are a common one. And so, you know, you can use it to send, you can use it to right. send to your boyfriend or Marriage girlfriend or whatever. Or whatever. Um, but it's, it's this way of kind of deconstructing video. So instead of just saying, I'm going to turn it on, I'm going to watch it till it's done, and then I'm going to quit, maybe I'll comment. It's, it's, there's, a, there's a real sense of experimentation around what the affordances of video are. Including, you know, one of the reasons Shakashu was interesting to me is saying, I'm going to take video and I'm going to get rid of all the visual bits and let the user replace that. That's that's new. 
and then provide them a platform where they can share it. Right, to, and to then provide a platform sharing. You know, and of course the you know the rise of the live streaming stuff. I mean, there was there there have always been cam girls, right? There since right. since since the live stream began. But now with the rise of what's called RTP, real-time transport protocol, which is essentially a, an internet standard for video streams, the, the innovation around you can go and find people all over the world and interact with them. Sometimes it's for serious things. One of my former students has worked on a, on a Chinese to English translation and language learning platform. Sometimes it's just you know people being silly. So RTP is the technology that's enabled things like Periscope and, and right. Facebook Live. Periscope, and, uh, Vine, all this, all this Vine, stuff. And sometimes Vine. they don't even use that technology because then they go for deeper optimizations. But RTP is the thing that concentrated the whole field on this is now possible. You can manage hundreds or even thousands of potential live streams um, and you could toggle from one to the other without there being that huge overhead of loading a video that that comes from a from a, a Yoku or a YouTube. Um, you can just switch really quickly. Mm. Um, you know the rise of Twitch. You know the, right. the gaming. So Twitch so is amazing too. Twitch is amazing. The, Twitch the seems of, to me like the I mean the sort of thing that would have emerged in China and and it didn't. But yeah, fascinating. And the the the, the sort of esports culture of watching other people play video games that you also know well. There is now a Shanghai round for Dota 2. And so the there's an international Dota competition. That's defense of the Ancients, if you... If you well, actually, aren't, aren't. weirdly, they're not allowed to call it that because oh, of So officially, like AT&T, officially the name is now Dota. Oh, right. Um, it came out of the game, yeah, Defense of the Ancients. Uh, but the Dota Dota Two has now added these international rounds, and because the Chinese so this is a gaming uh, competition, yes, right, right. And Dota Two where people un- actually watch people playing. Yes, and Dota Two was unusual in that it is more like a sport because the map has never changed, and so there is deep familiarity. It's not like oh, today we have a new level or new terrain. It's always the same map, so it's much more like sports. It's it's people getting incredibly good at a narrow range of well-understood tasks. And it's, it's become an eSport. People watch other people playing it. And because the Chinese gaming culture is so intense, as they started expanding this around the world, they added a Shanghai round this last, uh, this last year. I think it was January or February. So we're starting to see these kind of international networks of things where the culture isn't, isn't it isn't like K-pop anymore, like this started in Korea, but it's being exported. The rise of gaming culture has been sort of bits and pieces all over the world, and it's just coalescing into a global network that is know, transnational, post-national, I don't know what you'd call it, but it's, it's awfully interesting. Well, Clay, we'll revisit you soon, I hope, for another catch-up on, on all things that are you know, bizarre and interesting on the Chinese internet. Uh, I'm glad that we still have somebody who's on the ground over there. To, to, to Thanks very much. Up. It's been, it's been amazing. And I'm, it's great to see you guys. Uh, it's great to see you guys on this side of the, the side of the Pacific as well. Yeah. Hey, so stick around. We're going to make some recommendations, but uh, before we do, uh, we want to remind our listeners that the Seneca podcast is powered by SUP China. Check out the app and subscribe to the newsletter at SupChina.com. You can also follow SUP China on Twitter. The handle is at SUP China news and on Facebook at, Facebook.com slash SubChina News. And now on to recommendations. Jeremy, what do you have for us this week? Well, uh, two things, really. I, I made the realization after I moved back to the United States that I, I, I was reading fiction again. And I'd, I'd f- stopped reading fiction in China for a number of years. And so, well, because China was, you know, bizarre enough. Well, right? I think just Stranger daily than any life fiction. was so overwhelmingly bizarre <laughs> that fiction just seemed like it couldn't compete. Um, so I'm reading a, a novel I'd recommend at the moment by Julia Pierpont called Among the 10,000 Things, which is a very funny book. The, 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 the setup is... Sounds the, like it's China-related. Well, it's not, actually. It's nothing to do with I China. I mean, 10,000 Things is a Chinese expression. You know, yeah, no, this is nothing right. to do with China. This uh, a daughter of a family. She comes home and finds a box of letters dumped by the woman who her father was cheating on her mother with, and she reads these letters, and it's kind of this family drama, and it sounds awful, but it's very funny. Um, <laughs> but <laughs> aside from that, I'd like to recommend a piece called Modern China is So Crazy It Needs a New Literary Genre on Living Through the Ultra Unreal uh, by a Chinese writer named Ninkan, and there's an English translation available on a website called lithub.com. 
Cool. I will definitely check that out. Clay, and what about you? What do you have for us? So the on the subject of internet literature in China, I think one of the things that's the most different about the Chinese internet is the rise of these online fiction sites that are they they have a real economic model. They're not just fan fiction. People are essentially producing epistolary novels on sites like Qidian and Jinjiang, these sites that that basically become platforms for this new class of internet literature. Um, and there is a book called Internet Literature in China by Michelle Hooks that came out about a year and a half ago that is the best overview of this phenomenon. Well, wow, um, I have not encountered that. That's interesting. Yeah, H-O-C-K-X. He is at Leiden, I think. He's a sinologist at Leiden, but he basically walks through... The social and cultural and economic and political ramifications of internet literature in China, including making what for me was a very interesting sort of historical discussion of the way in which the literary establishment, however you want to think of that, has been turned upside down about five times in the last hundred years. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The Republic falls, all that stuff goes away. China sets up, there's a new there's a new budding that's all destroyed in the Cultural Revolution. Then in the 80s, there comes this period where... You have Wang Meng at the head of the, the Ministry of Culture, and there's... Yeah, he, he was like... right. So, and it's happening again, right? She, when she went out and gave a speech about how important culture was, everybody was like, oh, Jesus, slow, new day, slow news day in China. Like, why is he talking about culture? Turns out he meant every word. And that the you know the 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 emphatic shaping of culture by the state is now a big a, a big part of that that government's efforts, and so there's there's both this historic overview of the last hundred years of literary production in China, and then also just fascinating looks at you know the 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 man who was writing his diary online as he was dying about these online literature sites and the kind of you know the new genres they're producing that of the sort that Jeremy was talking about. Um, it's the it's the best overview of one of the most interesting parts of the Chinese cultural scene that's that's out there. Excellent. So I'm going to wrap with um, something kind of predictable. Um, I'm 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 going to recommend a book written by one of our rotating co-hosts, David Moser, A Billion Voices: China's Search for a Common Language. You hear the authentic New York sirens in the background. <laughs> yeah, here. no, that's a nice, just, nice little color. <laughs> yeah, good little bit of color here. So yeah, a billion voices. It's it's one of the Penguin shorts. Uh, it's a, a terrifically written little piece. A uh, little, uh, you know, read it an hour and a half. It's a a, a great little intro to um, all the struggles to create a modern Chinese language, and it's full of surprises. Even people like me who think they'd known something about the story were uh, I was I, I learned a whole lot of new stuff. So check it out. Uh, and Jeremy, I'm going to take this out. What do you think? Uh, Rock and roll. All right, man. The Seneca Podcast is powered by SupChina and is produced by Kaiser Guo and Jeremy Goldcorn. Special thanks this week to our friends here at New York University. And, of course, to Anla Cheng, Amadeo Tumalillo, and Soraya Darabi from SupChina. Drop us an email at Seneca at SupChina.com. Visit our Facebook page at Facebook.com slash Seneca Podcast and follow us on Twitter at Seneca Podcast. Thank you for listening. Thanks a lot, Clay. Thank and you. We will see y'all next week. Take care.